You're listening to Life and Leadership, A Conscious Journey, the podcast that shares wisdom and strength. Join your host, Dr. Michelle St. Jane's weekly conversation on how to have a positive impact for people, planet, and the wider world. If you want to live a life of intention, be proactive with your time, and bring your vision for the future to life one today at a time, you are in the right place at the right time. Let's get started. You may see your life and sphere of influence in the world in quite modest terms because you're looking at a relative small number of people that you have impact on compared to the 7.5 billion that occupy this earth. In your own small way, you have a real effect on the world as you deepen and become clearer around your connection to all humanity and your conscious journey. How can you not stand idly by? What do you need to stand up for? Share your talent. Open your heart. The world is waiting for someone just like you. Alia Danzian is an example of a high-achieving woman in the world, stepping up when she sees a problem and lack of action. She offers selfless service for the benefit and interests of others in her community and wider globally. Alia was nominated in the category of Public Policy and Advocacy as a New Zealand Woman of Influence in 2020. Join me for a powerful conversation around courageously stepping into the void to create change around public policy and advocacy. Alia, so good to see you and what an honor to stand amongst such amazing women as a finalist for a woman of influence in New Zealand, the New Zealand Awards in 2020. Your nomination was around the category of advocacy and public policy. And I value all your service, but for listeners, can you give them a little bit of how you ended up on the forefront of all of this? Well, I moved to New Zealand 15 years ago or almost 15 years ago and Prior to coming to New Zealand, I practiced law in the United States, but I'm Muslim. And when I came here, I was actually asked by the New Zealand government initially to help New Zealand help their youth integrate into New Zealand. And so I just started a youth program that was working that way. But then because the program was working and there was so much engagement in it, then the National Muslim Organization for Women asked if I would get involved there. So I started getting involved there. And then over a period of time from regional representation to the national representation, and then I ended up being elected as the assistant national coordinator for the Islamic Women's Council of New Zealand. And in that role, because I had been a lawyer and because I had a youth program that was working and was actually seen as best practices, not just for New Zealand, but globally for Muslim female youth, they asked me to start engaging with government and leading the government engagement portfolio for the Islamic Women's Council to help support our community and the challenges that were being faced. So that's what I started. And then obviously I was in that and we were asking for help from the government and we were explaining what the challenges that our community was facing, like, for example, when the the Islamic State matter in Iraq and Syria arose, there were repercussions with Islamophobia and things on our community. So we were advocating going, we needed support here. And we had warned that we were afraid there was potential for our community to be harmed. So we were seeking engagement and we did that prior to the Christchurch terror attacks. And then as a result of the Christchurch terror attacks, I was really, really pushed to the forefront. I had been quietly 
doing that government engagement prior to then and just engaging with government. But then I was just pushed by circumstances to be on the national level publicly and internationally. So through media, but also just the need to be advocating on such a high level consistently. So that's what I was doing the last two years. And the advocacy relates to getting support for the impacted families from the terror attack, but also really pushing advocacy on a national level for all communities, diverse communities in New Zealand, and the need for the government to be responsive to challenges that those communities are facing. And so I've been working on that for the last 20 months. And yeah, so that's where over time it built up and it came to the point that I think people were aware of the advocacy and also the urgency of the type of advocacy. Also, because of the terror attacks, there was a Royal Commission put forward and IWCNZ, as a representative of the Islamic Women's Council, I've been a core participant in that to try and see if the attacks were preventable. And so on that behalf, also, I've been quite at the forefront. And so then people I didn't even know, had never met, were the ones who put my name forward in this category. So for me, it was a huge honor that people had seen the value in a complete, in the capital. They had seen my advocacy um, through media and things and the impact that it's been having. And so they nominated me. I hadn't met them or known of them before that. I have since met them and thanked them. And it was a real honor to sit down and talk with them and discuss what they had seen and why they felt it was important as well. And then they're just lovely people. And so that's the basic short story of it. Yeah. So let's maybe go back to the beginning. When you were a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be so many things. First things I remember, my mother had broken her foot. And so she had to go to physiotherapy every week at the hospital. And it was a Catholic hospital. And there were nuns who were really, really nice. And one nun, you know, that I engaged with every week, she's like, oh, do you want to be a nun when you grow up? And I'm like, yeah, I want to be a nun. So probably the first thing I ever thought of was I wasn't even Catholic. So, And then through high school, it was journalism that I wanted to be and why I was really interested in international matters. And from that, then probably by university age, I thought I would work um, probably in one of the global like UN or, or Organization of American States or something like that to make more cross-border difference. And then somehow, not somehow, I know how I got it, but I became a high school teacher because I was interested in third world development as well at that time and needed to understand education. So I took education courses along with all the other courses. And then at the end of it, I did a, my teacher training and ended up loving it. So I went and was a teacher for a little bit. And then I was like, am I going to be happy long term in my life teaching? So I became a lawyer in the States and I practiced law and I litigated. And again, I went to law school expecting to do international law and then found out I'm really good at arguing and debating. And so I became a litigator and practiced law in the States. And then I got sweet talked into moving to New Zealand because it was a beautiful place and love's come along with that. I haven't regretted the decision to move to New Zealand. It's quite a beautiful place. People respect your time and it's an enjoyable, 
healthy environment, I would say, both emotionally and physically. And it's ironic, even after the attacks were how traumatizing and devastating it's been to New Zealand, I still don't regret the move. And I don't, overall, the, the concept of well-being as a nation is a priority that a lot of nations don't have. When I moved to New Zealand, I chose to go back to teaching. So my fear that when I was older, I wasn't going to be happy teaching hasn't come to pass. And then this year, I received a study award. So I get my full salary and I get to study, which was lovely. Again, New Zealand government has set that up with the teacher association. And so I was one of the people who received that. And I've been able to study educational leadership in that time as well. And I found it really interesting, fascinating. It it allowed me to sit back and think about the type of leadership I want to have and also to think about the leadership that's influenced me. Yeah, so that's where I'm at right now. Where to from here is going to be an interesting thing, but yeah. So when I was young, I was going to be a nun and then a journalist. (laughs) (laughs) And then political scientist. And yeah, it just continues on. And I've got 50 more years probably, hopefully. From here to where? (laughs) And it's interesting, we parallel. I um, started off in law. And then after I was practicing law, I had the opportunity to teach law. So I was teaching American law, English law, Canadian law, all kinds. So I, I, like you, I have a heart for comparative law or international laws. And I think we cross over on human rights as well, don't we? Have you? Yeah. I've done research related to human rights in the Caribbean. I have a big social justice is one of my, probably if we go back to when I was three or four, social justice in a form was something maybe as the youngest child by seven years and wanting to keep up with everyone. I just, everything needed to be fair and equal from that point. And Throughout my life, social justice and equality is very important. And what's ironic is I've never really focused on the gender aspect of social justice in the sense of myself, but yet I've been forced into that time and time again. I grew up on a farm. I was one of three daughters, which normally farmers at that time really wanted sons to help out on the farm. And my father didn't have sons, so we did everything that males did. And from that point, I've never doubted that I could hold my own amongst men. So my legal career, almost all the people I worked with were males. But yet, in my personal life, I'm surrounded with females. And even where I've chosen to invest my time and work with Muslim female youth. It's building up females so that they feel comfortable doing that rather than confronting men, I guess would be, you know, like I built that confidence and investment on the female side, but just because it's the right thing to do, not specifically because it's a gender. I would do it for men too, I guess, but it's just females tend to connect with me. So it's quite interesting that I'm comfortable working with men females are very comfortable working with me. Fascinating. Very, I can empathize with that. And I kind of did things a little bit backwards from you because growing up in New Zealand, the core values are around fairness. Whereas in the States, the core values are around freedom. So I have to mind my fairness meter. So my legal work was very much around corporate peacemaking in terms of getting men to the table to sort of grow their understanding of discrimination, equality, 
and what women might need in the workplace. So corporate peacemaker more than a litigator for me. But certainly I had to wise up in doing business in the Northern Hemisphere, particularly in North America, is about freedom. And my Kiwi core is all about fairness. So I have a major legacy around access to justice, which filters into social justice. But if you ever want to see me be up front and squaring off is if people do not have access to justice and their rights, I'm front and center. I'm trying to slow down a bit on that front now. <laughs> Well, the the aspect, you know, in that concept of freedom that like I really believe in the aspects of freedom, but people tend to only focus on one right Mm -hmm. or one, you know, there are a a significant number of freedoms that people ignore and don't realize that there's this dynamic. And if you go to laying out all those freedoms, it actually goes down to fairness. Yes. Like, it actually, if you lay them out side by side and you see all of the, the freedoms and the rights next to each other, it all the core aspect is fairness. Except in capitalism. <laughs> well, the thing is, I would say there's one thing with, with people who are define policy and there's another thing with the average American. The average American that I grew up with, I'm not saying everybody, but the average American that I grew up with really was about, is it fair? While they may be being taught freedoms, their interactions were on a fairness basis. And the other thing is like, so I grew up in rural Midwest area. There was such a sense of community, even though the U.S. prides itself on individualism, there was such a sense of community where I grew up. And so it isn't a full thing. And if people right now that are talking about the individual most of the times, if you looked at it, it wasn't the individual that got themselves where they're at. It's the community that actually did that. And we have to start valuing that more again, I think. And we have to articulate it as a community, as a nation, and even on on a world level. And we actually have to start investing in the community so that the people, when they they have their individual opportunities and rights and freedoms, they're built up in a quality manner. Well put. I'm definitely founding my work very strongly now around conscious stewardship and raising awarenesses around that because you and I, easily you and I, are on the world stage. You know, we have a presence. We have a worldwide network. People listen to what we say. We're members of the intelligentsia. Being conscious about how we contribute to those conversations has a ripple out effect. So I take that responsibility very much to heart in terms of making sure I aligned not only in my physical presence, but also in my digital presence as well. So you founded WOWMA, W-O-W-M-A, how cool. Yeah. Why? I think you might have touched on it a little bit, but from your heart, your soul's calling, what was your hope and are you um, reaching those goals? So WAMA stands for the Women's Organization of the Waikato Muslim Association. And so I'm based in a region in New Zealand called Waikato. And we were actually approached by the government. I was working on teaching and I was doing a law degree at the same time. And the New Zealand government approached our president of our association and said, we need help because we were having female youth that were getting in trouble with the police, having challenges with school. And they said, we need help from 
women in the community. They asked him to point out five women that are doers. And he pointed to me and four other women who are doers. We got called to this meeting. We were introduced and told what the issues were, which we actually knew we had seen it. I myself had had to go and report a small minor crime at the police station. And I had seen youths from my community walking in for meetings with police. And they were like parole meetings or probation meetings kind of thing. And so I knew it. So when they were talking about these issues, we were all like, yes, they're real issues, but we're really busy. And the woman said, well, point me to five other women that can do it then. I need five women who can work together. And we couldn't point to five other women. So then we got talked into governing as a committee and trying to get things done. And because I had worked with youth, I was a teacher, but I'd also worked with youth camps in the States as a program director and things. I was tagged for the youth portfolio. We decided that that was where the priority would be so that they become connected to our community, that they become connected to New Zealand, but also that we start building our community. So I developed the WAMA program, which is a three-year sustainable program. And it was working really well. It's So the first year we connect the youth to each other so that they feel like they have a community. The second year we connect them to the traditions and the people of the land so that they feel like they have a place here in New Zealand. Because the vast majority of our youth either are migrants, 75% come from overseas, but 25% were born here. But of the 25%, a significant number of them come from migrant community as well. So we wanted them to have a place. And then the third year, we offer a leadership program for those who are showing interest and potential. At the end of it, if they complete all their obligations in the leadership program, then they go on what we call the journey. And that's a, well, the first time it was four nights and the next time it was five nights on a river. And they work with each other, paddling through and really become a cohesive group. They'd already been working with each other for a year, but that final challenge, and then they come out a bit stronger and, and they're to lead. And, and it was working quite effectively. But what's happened in the last few years is that because I've had to focus on the national level and sustaining the, it's become more ad hoc in the sense of the consistency, the subsequent leaders are now having children and so they can't focus as deep. And so one of my goals this year is actually getting back to doing that cycle again. And the challenge of having to do all this national and international advocacy has required me to pull off my time from developing my own community. And, and that's actually my sweet spot. If you, you know, that's where I like to invest my time and it brings me a lot of joy. The advocacy I'm good at, it's needed. And so it's been the priority, but if I could control the world, my focus would, my focus would be on the female youth and going out adventuring with them. The nice thing is we're opening a retreat. We have a retreat. And so that's a legacy that stands. The building's finished. We now just are getting the property. It's a small, it's a three bedroom. It's not huge, but it's actually an idea where, and it's not flash in the sense of high end five star. It is a basic retreat where, where our youth can go and relax and they can go and reflect. And not just our youth, but adult women as well. It's right by the sea. Literally, it butts 
abuts the sea and they will be able to launch kayaks if they wish, but it's really just to reflect and see and relax and connect with each other or with God. How wonderful that being able yeah. to pause in the busyness of today is so precious. So I'm very grateful to hear that. I was in a very similar position when I started a social enterprise law firm. And, you know, after 10 years, I was pretty exhausted and I was very blessed to be able to sustainably transition the leadership. But how does the right person has to come along and how you then transition the next one, just how you get a regenerative cycle going can be quite a challenge, can't it? Especially when you've identified your sweet spot as well. So it's good that you've got a law school up the hill, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. It's nice. <laughs> they would an advocacy program. You might need to pull in some help. <laughs> and get that. That, to, that would be nice. It's really the other aspect of advocacy is that people, you know, on a community basis, they actually need to know the community well. Yes. And either be invested in the community or know it very, very well, which takes a lot of time. Yes. And that's where we because we've been such a migrant community, it's taking time, but we're getting there. And we're tapping women who are in their late 20s to early 40s to start developing them more so that they feel comfortable to take our space. We've asked people, you know, come in and take our space. And they're like, oh, we can't because they've seen us as quite strong and had having to be strong with the advocacy. And so they're reluctant. And so with that, we're having personal conversations, but in the sense of explaining where we were, but we weren't on the nat global stage kind of thing at the time, you know, when we were developing our leadership. And so we're trying to get alongside some females that we see with that potential in that age range of late 20s to early 40s to just have them come along with us for a while and then hopefully step into our space. Wonderful. And you may want to go a generation up and draw in the elders in terms of, you know, we've got women now in their 60s and 70s who've had careers, which wasn't the norm. So the baby boomers not retiring quietly to a corner. It may be perfect opportunity to be calling into action the elder ladies to come back in as well. Well, I will show you, explain a unique demographic of New Zealand because of the immigration policy. We don't have elders. So whereas the average population in New Zealand has about 20 to 25% actually elders in their community, we have less than 6%. And then inside of that 6% of elders, most of them are migrants with limited English. So there's a, another dynamic there. And so you actually get down to one person or two people and they're not supported. So that elder role is actually coming on my generation and I'm in my early 50s. And besides that, we have working careers and we're trying to build up our community. So that's why we're having to tap that next generation a bit earlier. The other thing is our community is like almost twice as young as the rest of New Zealand because of that immigration constraint and dynamic. Well, let me also say happy birthday and thank you for contributing your wisdom, strength and hope on your birthday, Alia. I think you've covered some future challenges in what you've just said, but is there anything else that you would suggest? Well, what we have right at the forefront is that next, well, on Tuesday, the Royal Commission will be issuing publicly its report. And 
it's a large report. It's almost 800 pages. And it is just a review of New Zealand's public service. Just from what they've articulated already, the public service is going to need to do some adjustments. And so that's at the forefront right now in helping New Zealand get it right for all communities in how they engage in the open and transparent manner that they engage with communities. The New Zealand has a reputation overseas as being open and transparent, and it is in a lot of ways, but what it's been doing, and this is my opinion, but with some communities, we'll handle it for you rather than being open and transparent about what is needed and allowing the communities to help solve the matter. And that's been historically a pattern that needs to be changed. And we hope this Royal Commission report will do that. And as a result, we have to step into that space and really ensure that it's occurring. Uh, Those recommendations will be really important. So that's at the forefront. Long-term, we want to see our community connecting with the traditions and the history of this land and feeling part of New Zealand in the sense of you saw the togetherness after after the attacks. We would like that to be in a lived experience on an ongoing basis for all communities coming in. And so that would be where we would focus besides what comes in with the Royal Commission. Wonderful. Is there any last words, Alia? You've just been a font of wisdom. Lots of wisdom somewhere, but in the sense of communities, I think it's really, really important that we allow the communities that are of interest or at risk to speak for themselves and to actually really, really listen to what they need. When people say, I need this, there is a basis for why they're saying it. You may not fully agree that they will need it, but you really need to delve into that basis of why. And you need to also, you being general, I'm talking general, looking at empirical data sometimes. So as an example, I'll use an example. They continually said that the Muslim community prior to the government, prior to the Muslim community was a risk, but yet there hadn't been any incidents in New Zealand, right? And all the indicators that we were giving them uh, regarding the settle, how settled our community is, how happy our community is here, were kind of just pushed aside. But when we were actually giving data to them regarding our risk and saying, we need help, we don't know how big this risk is, but we feel this risk and this is, and we were giving examples, they just kind of ignored it because globally they were being told something else. And I think had we've been listened to, I feel like rather than just spoken with, I guess would be, if we'd actually listened, I think there would have been more solutions on the table. That's a wicked problem. That's a wicked problem. And frankly, Christchurch has been the site of a couple of, you know, that's two major events, one with an earthquake and one with a terrorist attack. So you're quite right. And that listening with the earthquake was another concern. Do you know what I mean? What there was needed, what was needed to help solve and rebuild was also a concern. And yeah, but I'm feeling confident about the world, and I know people are stressed, and I know the pandemic is stressing everybody. But I am seeing glimpses of hope 
everywhere. And it's from the neighbors who are taking care of each other. Just in this time, people are like, oh, they're not going to or everybody. And it's been the contrast that human empathy that's amongst the vast majority of people is coming out. And you see it in little vignettes. Unfortunately, we have to rely on media to see it. But I see little glimpses all over the world. And I think that if people feel confident in that, then they can build something for themselves. And it's making me feel more positive. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for your contribution. And thank you for your service. You're one of the leading lights in my life for the last five years. And it's been such a pleasure to host you. Dr. Michelle St. Jane is a conscious steward of meaningful leadership in the world and the wider cosmos. Tune in every Thursday for real talk around life, leadership, and your conscious journey. Be ready to create and cultivate your dreams and soul-hearted desires. Your support is valued. Please subscribe. Leave a review and a rating. But more importantly, share with your connections.